0: Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. As of the publishing of this episode, we are currently in the middle of the 2021 Advent season. And if I'm unable to release another episode in the next few weeks, I want to take this opportunity to wish all of you a very joyous and safe Advent and Christmas season. May all of your hearts and homes be filled with peace and hope as we celebrate the birth of our blessed Savior. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend or family member that you think might enjoy it as well. Also, please visit the show on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. That will definitely help others find us. And if you would like to reach out to me, that email is contact at I'm also slowly making all these episodes available on YouTube. So you're welcome to go check us out there as well. Today's guest is Reverend Roger Joslin. Although Reverend Joslin is currently the rector of two Episcopal parishes in Long Island, New York, the warm, endearing Southern drawl of his native Texas is unmistakable. Reverend Joslin shares with us his return to the Christian faith, which led him to becoming a priest in the Episcopal Church. And that ultimately resulted in his participation in the Johns Hopkins and New York University psilocybin for religious leaders study. Enjoy. Today we welcome Reverend Roger Jocelyn to the podcast. Roger is a native of the state of Texas and received both his bachelor's in psychology and his master's in political science from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as his master's of divinity from the Episcopal Theological Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas. Roger is former vicar of All Saints Episcopal Church in Bentonville, Arkansas, and is now the rector of both Holy Trinity of Greenport, New York, and Church of the Redeemer in Matutuk, New York, on the North Fork of Long Island. Roger was also a participant in the Johns Hopkins Psilocybin for Religious Leaders Study. Reverend Roger Joslin, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's delightful to be with you, Glenn. Well, Roger, if you could, why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about your, your early life and your spiritual influences? Sure. I grew up in Texas
1: in a, uh, in a small town, actually out, out in the country, south of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, and I grew up Baptist uh, in a very uh, devout family. My dad was a deacon. My mom taught uh, Sunday school for probably about uh, 70 years. Um, They were both very active. As Baptist youth do, we went to church twice on Sunday, on Wednesday evening, and maybe even Thursday visitation, and
0: we lived at church. Probably had a revival every now and then, too.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Revivals were a regular part of of life, and uh, I took it all very seriously. As Baptists say, I walked the aisle when I was seven years old, uh, making a profession of faith, an altar call. And um, went to uh, Royal Ambassadors Camp at one point and decided I was going to be a missionary. I uh, found the idea of being uh, traveling the world and uh, proclaiming the gospel to be quite a, an appealing thing. I uh, stayed in church and very devoted to the church until uh, the summer of my senior year in high school, just after I graduated from high school. Actually, the day after I graduated from high school, I went to California. And this was in 1969, uh, one year away from officially the Summer of Love. But I assure you, the Summer of Love managed to persist another summer in Southern California. And um, my eyes opened up in all kinds of ways. You know, small town boy from Texas who had just played football and chased girls and uh, took school fairly seriously, but not too much, and um, hadn't really opened my eyes to a wider world. In Southern California, I found myself uh, uh, visiting with Buddhists to, uh, who taught me chants and traveling to Mexico and, um, and surfing all summer long, bought surfboards and uh, would spend the day working hard. I managed to get a, a job, a, a great job while I was in California, a union job, making more money than I probably make now, relatively speaking, as a priest, but uh, would work hard all day and surf in the afternoon and then hit the streets and discover Southern California. As it happened, that summer, I turned 18, and we were in the midst of the war in Vietnam. So I was required to register for the draft. And I really hadn't had a political bone in my body at that point. I just really hadn't given it much thought. So I went, got on a bus and went to San Diego, registered for the draft. On the way home from registering... Got back on the bus and a uh, a young man, only a couple of years older than I was, sat in the seat behind me. And he had just returned from Vietnam. And uh, now we would diagnose him as having PTSD. Uh, Then he was just a Vietnam vet. This young man proceeded to tell me about his experiences in Vietnam. Uh, He had been a machine gunner. He told me of one instance when there was a a funeral procession walking across a hillside with men, women, and children. He set up his machine gun and uh, killed them all, wiped out the entire funeral procession. And then he showed me his his human ear collection, uh, a necklace he had around his neck that was composed of, of ears. I realized at that point that I had been lied to by my government, by my teachers, by my church that the world I learned I, I discovered the world was not as it I thought it was and um, my eyes were were opened and I began to pay attention. I read about the war and from everything I can tell it was an unjust war and um, I <clears throat> at that point I had um, had made plans to go to college at Baylor, a Baptist school, and to play football there. And um, I continued with that plan, but I didn't feel at home there at all. I was involved in a number of protests and war along the way, and uh, they were attended by very few students, whereas the world was turning upside down. And in this Baptist world in which I was exist- I-, I lived, uh, it hardly made an impact. And so I decided to transfer to the University of Texas, where I found myself more at home. Uh, and um, I, be- I stopped going to church. I applied for a conscientious objector status and found- discovered that my church did not support me in that effort. Uh, my pastor was in favor of the war. The people I'd gone to-, to church with all my life, whom I had a great deal of respect for, also seemed to favor the war. And so I I quit going to church altogether, and um, to any church for for many many years. I didn't ever really lose my spiritual connection. I had always found a great deal of, of uh, connection with the divine in a natural world. I'd I'd hiked and cycled and swam and I was raised in the country where I, I spent a lot, a lot of my days riding horses and and swimming in creeks and exploring and fishing and. And um, uh, I still retain that kind of connection with divine uh, in, a, in a natural setting for uh, the next 20 years of my life.
0: What led you to California right after high school? What, was it just the job out there? No, I, I'd
1: intended to spend two weeks um, visiting family and friends and going to Disneyland and, and uh, seeing whatever there was to see in Southern California. But it turns out I had a friend who was, whose father was there who was a steel worker and his name was Tex and uh, Tex one day when I was visiting with them, we'd gone fishing with them for Benita. He said, Roger, you want a job? And uh, so I said, sure. So I wound up staying
0: all summer. Wow. Okay. Cool. But you still had um, education or career plans. So you, you'd already kind of planned yeah, to I'd come like, back to Baylor. That's right. Texas. Uh,
1: first time. Yeah. Coming back to Texas at the end of the summer, but I came back to a different, a different person than I had right. than I. Three months before.
0: Yeah, sounds like you had some fortuitous meetings out there. I did indeed. It uh, it shaped me in important ways.
2: Right.
0: So, at you know, being out there in the late 60s in California, you must have noticed, you know, the prevailing hippie culture. What were your thoughts about that? You know, did that oh, seem it... foreign or did it seem uh, enticing? Or it took me about five minutes to be uh, fascinated
1: and, uh, to decide not to cut my hair that summer, and, uh, <laughs> and I found it very appealing. Uh, it was it was exciting and interesting and different. And I've always embraced change and and uh, things that are different. Really, much of it was very foreign to me, but uh, not so foreign that I found it that I that
0: I couldn't uh, enjoy it. And mm. yeah. When you came back to Texas, what were your original education plans?
1: I wasn't sure what I was going to major in in college uh, at that point. I just knew I I wanted to play football. And even though I wasn't big and strong or fast enough to really play college football, uh, when you grow up in a small town in Texas, that's what you do. And uh, I hadn't really quite gotten over that. It didn't take long for me to discover that that really wasn't going to work out well for me, uh, that I wasn't big and fast and strong and mean enough to, to play college football. But I did enjoy being at Baylor very much, found the, uh, the education quality far surpassing anything that I'd ever had uh, any inkling of in high school. English teachers, history teachers uh, were, were fascinating to me and, and the subject matter grabbed hold of me. And I, so I began to take academics more more seriously. Uh, Though at that time, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to what I wanted to study.
0: So you were at Baylor for how long before you uh, transferred to Austin? A year. Okay. yeah. Even now, you know, this many years later, there's there's still a pretty big cultural gap, I would say, between a school like Baylor and a school like UT. Probably
1: so. I, I haven't spent any time in Waco in recent years, but I suspect so. Although I do have a good friend that I met in seminary. That teaches uh, creative writing at Baylor. And has far, he's a t- he's a tenured professor, and, and uh, he he's an he's an Episcopalian, and um, I know the quality of, of the instruction there is good, really, and varied. Even though it's a very conservative institution, the professors there are, are pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, they still have a stellar reputation down here in the South. So, what happened in Austin for, <laughs> when you got there? Uh,
1: Well, my first um, visit to Austin with a roommate from who was from Austin at at Baylor, he took me around to the drag, which was the uh, Guadalupe street, which runs along the side of the University of Texas. And uh, I discovered that there were just all kinds of things going on. They're much more interesting than they were at Baylor. Music scene was fantastic. The hippies were fascinating. The girls were beautiful. It was fun. And um, so I think I probably was just drawn to uh, the excitement, and the thrill of being there in Austin in those very formative years with uh, the with, uh, music scene was just beginning to develop. And now it's, it's full blown. But uh, it was in those days. I mean, in Austin, uh, the slogan in Austin is keep Austin weird. We were part of the generation that made Austin weird. And uh, so it was exciting to be a part of that there was always this undercurrent of the war in Vietnam taking place around us. And uh, so I was involved in lots of protests and, and active an activist and an uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam. And eventually uh, I studied psychology, but really um, my interests were moving toward, uh, toward peace research. You know, I think I've always kind of wanted to do what was, seemed the most important thing going on around me and at that time the greatest evil seemed to be war in my mind i uh spent a lot of time as i continued on graduated from the university of texas and then um work traveled went to mexico uh bicycled across the united states worked as a carpenter and uh but then eventually decided to go back to graduate school and to to pursue uh peace research And I did that at the University of Texas for two years and got a master's in in the government department and then transferred. I went to the University of Sussex in in England. I uh, thought that if I was studying international relations, I'd be better off if I uh, lived abroad. Mm -hmm. And there was a visiting professor at the University of Texas who uh, advised me on a couple of different schools to apply to in Britain. And Sussex was one of them. And I was accepted there and spent two years there. It was an exciting experience living in England and it was, it was thrilling really. At that time, maybe still, Britain was very much had taken on a role of being an educator for the Commonwealth countries around the world. And so it being part of, it, of, a, of an international relations department, I would sit at a table with people from all over the world and talk politics. And, you know, my best friend was a CUSO volunteer. uh, That's the Canadian equivalent to the Peace Corps, uh, who had spent a number of years in East Africa. Uh, I had another friend who was from Uganda, whose wife was in the days of Idi Amin. His wife was making his way across the jungles, her way across the jungles of Africa to get to him. A good friend who was a, a Marxist who was whose father was a wealthy Brazilian industrialist. And, you know, I would sit at a table with, a, with one person who had, with two people who had fought in the Six-Day War, you know, one on the Egyptian side and one Israeli. So I really got to experience what it meant to be part of an international community firsthand.
0: Now that uh, was just part of your education or you, were you operating in some kind of official capacity?
1: I was a student. I was a grad student.
0: Uh, I was also a tutor.
1: I, was, I taught uh, U.S. foreign policy and a few other subjects along the way, but mostly I was a grad student. But the education really took place at the pubs and the dining halls and the hallways and, the off- and gathering places for students. The academic side of it didn't work out well for me at all. I had, uh, I had really been trained at the University of Texas, both an undergraduate and graduate student, as a social scientist. And I found myself being moved toward doing historical research at Sussex, which didn't either interested me or was part of what I knew how to do. But on a deeper level, I think that I discovered while I was there that I, while I was engaged in peace research, what I was really looking for was not peace between countries, but an internal peace. And I began searching for that. In, in more deliberate ways. I eventually came back to the United States and um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I needed to feel very, uh, I needed mm. to feel more productive. I wanted to see the results of my labor at the end of the day. I'd been uh, hammering away at a dissertation, taking the train every day to the public records office in London, spending a lot of time in libraries, And in solitude, and uh, I needed to to be able to, at the end of the day, to see something. So I'd done carpentry work, some with my dad over the course of my life, and then then some while I was in college and in grad school as well. And um, so I got a job at a cabinet shop, decided I was going to be a woodworker, that just working with my hands felt right to me. And I did that. I had been in school long enough to learn how to read, and so I read a lot uh, about uh, woodworking and uh, kind of taught myself a great deal, but also worked in the cabinet shop, and within a couple of years, I'd started my own business doing a variety of woodworking at the time, and um, the business took off and did well for a number of years. The Texas economy is always boom and bust, and so I did really well while the economy was doing well, and then when uh, it wasn't, I wasn't doing so well. Uh, so there was lots of ups and downs along the way, but it was largely a successful business, and I enjoyed it for the most part. Uh, eventually, uh, the kind of things that made it satisfying for me—working at the workbench and creating things—the time I had available to do that became more and more scarce because I was running a business and had employees, and and uh, was more of, became more of a manager than I did a than a craftsman, and uh, so
0: that was less satisfying. Well, they say uh, you work either in your business or on it you can't do both most of the time. So. yeah that's that's it's very true. Did you engage in a spiritual practice over those years uh, after coming back to the states?
1: Nothing formal for um, about 20 years. Um, some med- some meditation along the way, but um, I never very successfully what happened really was that um, I had been running. And uh, running had been very important to me for a long time. I'd always been an athlete and I'd always run, but I'd never really run as a regular physical practice until I uh, uh, probably was in my 30s. Along that way, um, what really happened uh, is that I had a, a crisis in one of those downturns in the economy, my business went bankrupt and at the same time, partially as a result, but Probably for a lot of other reasons, um, my wife wanted a divorce, and um, we had two young children. And um, the prospect of uh, she she had been my high school sweetheart, and we'd been together in one way or another almost twenty years. The prospect of that marriage falling apart was devastating for me. And at the same time, I had lost my business, so I was in a crisis, very much in a in a spiritual and a, emotional crisis. I took a job uh, working for one of my competitors uh, in San Antonio, managing projects for them. And while I was there, I, I, I had a lot of time on my hands because I wasn't with my family during the week. And uh, so I ran. Uh, and I found that I, when I ran, I felt better. Just, you know, the better endorphins kicking in, just the physical activity, the move, movement. So I ran and I ran and I ran. And I ran then in much the same way I think somebody who might be better at drinking whiskey than I am might drink. I just ran to feel better, really. And uh, But unlike drinking whiskey, I still felt okay afterwards. (laughs) Uh, So uh, that really became uh, an important part of my life, and I began to pay attention to it. And while I had... um, As I'd mentioned, I'd I'd tried meditation for many years without a great deal of success. I discovered uh, that as I ran, I was much of the kind of benefits of meditation were happening while I was running. And I began to practice uh, what's popularly known as mindfulness now, really just paying close attention to the run, paying close attention to my breath, Uh, the advantage of running, and watching your breath which people do in meditation all the time but if you're running you you have to watch your breath it's 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 at the forefront you can't you can't ignore it so i would watch my breath and i would listen to the sound of my feet touching the pavement i paid attention to things like the movement from being in the sun to being in the shade i became i practiced being present to my my immediate physical surroundings And, um, I found it transporting. I found it eventually much more than just running to feel better. I felt connected, um, connected in a way that I had escaped me for a long time and it was healing, uh, therapeutic and became spiritually meaningful for me. And, uh, I wanted to read more about this, what was happening to me. And at the time, there weren't really any, uh, there weren't any books about it. So I became, I, I paid a lot of attention to it, that practice and kept a journal for several years and eventually wrote a book, Running the Spiritual Path, that did quite well. And it was really the kind of the first book out on, on running as as a spiritual practice. And it's remained, uh, that remained important to me over the course of my life. It um at the same time, I uh, there was like, several things that happened, but one was um, I was reading an article in Harper's Magazine uh, written by a professor at Duke, an English professor, who had spent some time at Gethsemane. That's the uh, Trappist Monastery in uh, North or South Carolina, I can't remember right now, where Thomas Merton lived most of his life and um, this professor had spent some time there and had found it very transporting and he quoted thomas merton in his article saying that prayer is the desire to pray you know it's as if someone had just slapped me upside of the head and i realized i need to pray I mean, I'd grown up praying. I'd grown up listening to my dad. You know, the preacher would say, Brother Jocelyn, would you lead us in prayer? And dad would stand up and preach the most or pray the most eloquent prayers you could imagine. And and we always prayed before going to bed, but my prayers had been verbal and uh, heartfelt, but I knew I needed a different way to pray. I heard those words that Merton saying that because I Desired to pray, I was already praying, and um, that gave me this giant leap forward. I had known Merton because he was one of the of the religious leaders that had been in opposition to the war in Vietnam and had made his good friends with Thich Nhat Hanh and Buddhists and Hindus around the world, and very connected with various various monks in in the major religions. But I didn't know him really in his prayerful way. And so I uh, bought every book Thomas Merton had ever written and became a student of his and learned to meditate in different ways that, besides running, although that became, st- remained very important to me. And it really was at that point that I embarked on a serious spiritual journey of, of, of intention. And um, it didn't take too long before I was then drawn back into the church uh, I had a friend who was um, a chaplain at a hospital who was an Episcopal priest uh, Chuck Meyer and uh, Chuck suggested that I might find the Episcopal Church to be uh, to be welcoming and something would resonate with me uh, because I really didn't know much about church except the Baptist Church and that didn't resonate with me anymore, that evangelical end of things.
0: And Martin and, uh, was Roman Catholic, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I did. I visited the Episcopal Church and I found that people were welcoming. I discovered that my thesis advisor uh, was part of the Sunday school class there, uh, Christian education, and he was the smartest person I'd ever known. And I discovered we, we could ask questions that I didn't know we're permitted to ask in church. You know, I remember him asking, um, does God ever change God's mind? And I was like, wow, that's blasphemous. You know, I thought, you know, everything's all constant. But, uh, you know, inquiries like that, having an intellectual approach to religion appealed to me a great deal. At the same time, when they would pass the peace in the worship service, and someone would take your hand and shake your hand and look you in the eye and uh, say, peace be with you, at a time I needed peace so badly, uh, that, that felt perfect to me. And I also found that, that beauty as a pathway to God was, was really love, was a wonderful pathway. The Baptist church I had grown up in was very austere. The Episcopal church had vestments and candles and beautiful music. And I uh, was very drawn to that artful approach as well. So the intellectual appeal and the art and the, the welcoming spirit that I felt uh, resonated with me. And so I found myself back in church uh, after a very long absence, uh, really uh, 20 years. And it wasn't very long after that, I mean, within, oh, five years or so of being a part of the church again, that I began to, to wonder about a career. And that's another story, Clint. I don't know. I I can go on and on about this. At some point, you want to get to psilocybin? Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, yeah, briefly, like through all that time of your work life and, you know, your absence from the church, although you had, you know, you'd been to California during, you know, kind of the heyday of psychedelics, and then you returned to Texas. um, How did you view all of that culture? the the hippie movement, psychedelics. I know you kind of had a a little bit of a positive conditioning towards it, but how did, you know, growing up Baptist, especially, you know, in the sixties, like how did that color your, your concept of things like psychedelic drugs and what kind of former um, opinion did you have of those things?
1: Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't take any psychedelics while I was uh, a part of that, and, and didn't at all while I was young. I think I was uh, uh, afraid of it. I mean, there had been so much uh, what I view now as propaganda about uh, the dangers of psychedelics and you know your brain on on drugs and all that all that stuff, and and painting a broad stroke about drugs that I I stayed away from that. Um, I smoked a little marijuana like everybody did. In 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 college, but not really much. Uh, It didn't uh, just I don't know. I didn't like it much, really. Uh, Didn't have any any harsh judgment toward it. And uh, but it really wasn't something that that appealed to me. So I really wasn't part of the drug culture at all. Uh, I was a pretty good student. And so I I paid a lot of attention to my studies and, you know, drinking and smoking marijuana. didn't really it's hard to do that.
0: You decided to go to seminary, and uh,
1: um, yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's more complicated than that. Okay, <laughs> uh, as everything is, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of a story about that because I, I like the story. I I had um, I visited a lot of monasteries over the course of my adult life. Um, I found retreat centers to be very appealing. I like concentrated times of prayer and quietness, and and um, I went to one in New Mexico, Pe- the Pecos. At monastery in northern new mexico where i passed by many times was the spiritual homeland of northern new mexico farming but i tried to stay there once and uh at one point oh one day i was running uh all throughout northern new mexico for miles and miles and miles and encountered a a mountain lion who I had had a an interaction with that was mystical and i should tell this i uh on the way running out through this series of trails and um, animal tra- tracks and uh, logging roads i began to wonder whether i'd be able to find my way back so i take i take two sticks at every intersection and lay one on top of another and have so it point to uh, the way back and when i did return i discovered that at every intersection what i'd really done is place a cross and it just uh, I realized that it was like the cross was showing me the way home. It was deeply meaningful for me to realize that this church that I had rejected for so long was showing me the way home. And when I returned to the monastery, the uh, this young this monk, brother uh, Patrick, was waiting for me. We had become friends. We'd been peeling potatoes together and washing dishes over a few days and uh, Patrick had held me responsible. He was, a, he was a Benedictine. He was from England. But he had held me responsible for the decimation of the monasteries, for Henry VIII's sacking and looting the monasteries in the 16th century because I was Anglican. But we became friends. And at one point, he said, Roger, I think you should be an Anglican priest. And I had had a few people along the way suggest that ordained ministry, well, my mother to start with but many others along the way suggesting that ordained ministry might be something in my future, but I'd never really taken it seriously. And I had also thought, you know, well, what I told Patrick, look, I've, I've I've got a job. I've got two kids. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm older. No way I can, I can do that. And then that evening I was in my room and Patrick came to the, knocked on the door. And uh, said, I have something for you. And he had a small box, opened it up and inside was a clerical collar. And he said, uh, put it on. And uh, he made me put this clerical collar on and stand in front of the mirror. And for the first time in my life, I could see myself as a priest. Uh, It took, it had to be that literal. And, And he said, I want you to call your bishop. When you get home, and I offered him all kinds of excuses, and uh, it was quite a journey after that. It, it's not easy to become an Episcopal priest. It is very complicated. Many, many hours and days of, in, and it's an it's an inquisition from various levels. But eventually, I did and and entered seminary and and was ordained. But it was a it was a journey after that that really started with Patrick putting the clerical collar on me so uh, I uh, my first uh, my first job as a priest uh, was in the Diocese of Arkansas I'd gotten to know the bishop in Arkansas and um, he wanted me to start a church I I had been in business for myself I have a strong entrepreneurial spirit and I, uh, I'm old enough to op- I know how to operate independently and and he thought it'd be a good person to to plant a church so I went to Bentonville And uh, I found it a very exciting place to be at home of the largest at the time, the largest corporation in the world and uh, an opportunity to have an influence on people and an organization that affects environmental policies, labor relations in big ways. And you get to preach to them and teach them and proclaim the gospel in a place where people were receptive to that. It's a very church going kind of place. And people had come all over the world, and and I became involved with uh, the interfaith relations there in a big way. Bentonville, even though it was a small town in Arkansas, because Walmart required their vendors to have a presence there, people from all over the world flocked there. So there was a, a Hindu temple, and a Sikh temple, and a mosque, and and uh, the first uh, synagogue that had opened in the South in the last fifty years, and. I became good friends with the rabbi and with the with the Muslim community, and we worked together on a lot of projects. And uh, so it was a lovely thing. And the church grew, and uh, it did well, and I was there for uh, uh, almost 10 years. It was really time for me to do something different. 10 years seemed like a good long time to be in one place, and I was thinking about going to the East Coast or the West Coast, and I wasn't sure. Uh, I had a lot of friends in Seattle, and uh, I liked, liked it there. But then my daughter had a, a baby and uh, having a grandchild to see, one out of everything. And so I made some inquiries about coming to the uh, Diocese of Long Island, where my, my daughter lived in, in Brooklyn at the time. So I uh, made plans to come here. Now, along the way, uh, when I was really at the stage where I decided I, I wanted to do something different, uh, my good friend Hunt Priest, who's now head of an uh, organization called Lagare, which is involved in connecting the Christian community with the psychedelic community. Hunt saw a, uh, an ad in Christian Century, uh, that which they were recruiting people at Johns Hopkins, recruiting clergy to come be part of a, a study involving psilocybin. And Hunt called me up and said, Roger, this has your name on it. I'm not sure exactly what there was about that, that Hunt realized this is something I'd want to do, but, uh, he was right. It sounded like great fun. And I said, I told him, I think it, I think it has your name on it too. So we both applied and were eventually accepted into the study was very selective really in terms of, you know, making sure you're stable emotionally and, and physically, but eventually we were both accepted into the study and we became a part of it. And, um, so that's that's the background to the story of uh... yeah.
0: Well, I know I've having spoken to many others, I, I know a lot about the study, and I've shared a little bit about the study itself on here. So we don't really have to deal with that. Okay. You, if you if you could, to whatever degree you're you're willing and able, if you could begin to share a little bit about your own personal experience in the study, how you felt uh, going in and, and what you experienced and, you know, what, what kind of, uh, information that gave you moving forward in life? Yeah. Um,
1: well, I know you've talked to it, to other folks about the importance of, uh, set and setting with the psychedelic experience because, and I, I I can't really talk about that without, I have to underline the importance of that and, and the way in which, uh, my experience at johns hopkins with two guides who who i became friends with of course of the several meetings and their their wisdom and their skill and their compassion and their capacity to make a person feel comfortable were integral to the experience itself so going into the study i suppose i had some apprehension but most of the apprehension that i had it dissipated because of the the skill of my guides themselves. They they really did a beautiful job in of creating a setting that made me feel comfortable. And I didn't have clear intentions about what would happen. The study is in two parts. You take a a substantial dose of of psilocybin on one occasion and then three weeks later, I believe, take another dose of slightly higher dose. And each of the those two sessions were different. One was deeply personal. Uh, I was going through a divorce uh, with my wife in Arkansas, and my mother had died, and um, I went through a tremendous grieving process over the course of the, of the session in which I said goodbye to them, and not just to them, but said goodbye and re-experienced every loss, loss I had known over the course of my life. And it was painful, and uh, but profoundly beneficial. I went through a a process that I think would have taken years and years of psychotherapy uh, to to experience loss in that way and to grieve mightily. I cried for what I thought was hours and hours. Uh, I learned later it wasn't that long, uh, but it seemed forever. It was... um, it was cathartic and cleansing and powerful and beautiful and painful and everything you can imagine, really, all just rolled up into one 6 hour session. The other session was much more uh, magnificent. I was transported to other worlds. I saw things that I could have never imagined and experienced cultures and people and Creatures and and uh, it was this I just blasted away to other planets and um, became and and experienced a sense of unity and wholeness with all creation and um, it was exciting and adventurous and thrilling and scary as hell and you know there were times when I was like oh no I'm gonna go visit another world I can't do this and. Um, but uh, I did. And along the way, I would visit these, what I've come to call way stations. I would visit these other planets and learn these other things and go these other adventures, have these profound experiences. And then whew, I'm in this beautiful marketplace with, um, with fruit, exotic fruits and candies and pastries and beautiful women. And it's a place of abundance and richness and, and uh, fulfillment and rest and restoration. And I would just breathe this tremendous sigh of relief uh, at this place of comfort. And then as I was sustained, I would then be whisked off to another visit on a planet and find myself someplace else and on another adventure. And um, it's it, I that kind of movement in and out of seeking adventure and going into this thrilling worlds, this exploration of a deeply, profoundly spiritual place, and then coming back to another place of rest has become kind of um, thematic for my life uh i feel that kind of rhythm um being a part of who i am today and now kind of maintain that um i had a i had one very distinct advantage over anyone i've ever known who's 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 taken psilocybin um after uh about a month after I returned from from Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, I uh, had had arranged to take a sabbatical, and uh, I a three month sabbatical. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but just instantly, um, it just occurred to me that I should walk the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. And uh, your your listeners, I. I if you're not familiar with that, it's, it's an ancient pilgrimage across Spain, typically about 500 miles uh, from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port in France to, uh, to Santiago near the west coast of Spain. And pilgrims have been wash- walking this Christian pilgrims for about 1500 years. But before that, there's evidence that, that people on a spiritual journey of some kind or another had walked this path before. And it's a sacred place. There's just, it's just one of the holy places on the planet. And so I decided to walk the Camino. And um, this was very shortly after taking psilocybin. And it was for me this opportunity to engage in a meditation, um, to walk 500 miles in a meditative way, to pay attention to every, every step I took, to embrace every conversation I had with fellow pilgrims from around the world. And just to be so fully present to the experience in a way that I don't think I would have been able to had I not had the, the experience with psilocybin first. It prepared me in a unique way. And in fact, I don't I don't really even separate my Camino experience from, from my psychedelic experience. They are so linked in my mind. They are of a piece. So I walked this 500 miles and it was so fantastic. And um, I. How uh, long did that take you? About a month. Right. A month. Yeah. I'd met so many people along the way. Hundreds and hundreds of people, and sometimes a conversation for five minutes, sometimes a conversation for five days. Uh, I fell in love three or four times along the way, made good lifelong friends. I went to later, went to see people all over Europe that I became friends with along the way. I connected with people in a way I've never connected in my whole life. And and I'm a pretty good connector, but there it was just, I mean, everybody's on this path also maybe for all kinds of reasons, not particularly religious, some profoundly religious, but some, many, most not. Most were Europeans and they're fairly secular, but they were looking for something. Everybody was looking for something and, and hungry and wanting to be engaged and alive and awake. And, and I was able to experience that fully. When I arrived at uh, Santiago, there's a giant cathedral there and I had been told uh, that if I told them to, uh, that I was a priest, that I might be able to participate in the pilgrim's mass that takes place at the cathedral. And I made inquiries about that. Nobody didn't know anything what I was talking about. My Spanish is pretty good. But I was talking to somebody from Belgium, I think, and she thought I thought I was looking for a priest instead of telling her I was a priest. But, but anyway, I made my way to the cathedral, and uh, people were hundreds and hundreds of people were lined up to get inside, and so it was hard to get there. But I, I decided I would try to do this, and I would tell the guards what I wanted, and they said, "Well, go to the sacristy, and uh, maybe they can help you." And and I made my way through these crowds and and eventually found myself at the sacristy where a nun, well, this is a Roman Catholic cathedral, taken, keep in mind. There's a nun standing with her arms folded at the uh, front of the sacristy. And I told her that, um, I said, soy sacerdote, and uh, I'm a priest, I'm a pilgrim. And I, I still had on my, my shorts and t-shirt and I looked, and I didn't smell so good like most of the pilgrims. And I asked if I told I told her I had been told that I might be able to participate in the Eucharist, and um, she said, "Do you identification? Do you have any identification? You know, anything that it shows that you're a priest?" And uh, I told her I didn't. Well, we don't. They don't give you an ID or anything, but I, I had some pictures on my phone of of me in my in clerical stuff and investments, and so she looked at that and said, "Okay, stop in." and carried me in the back and showed me the vestments and I put them on and, and I met with a couple of other priests, one who had we'd been visiting from South Africa and another from, uh, from, uh, from Mexico, I think. And then eventually the the, priest, uh, the head priest came in and we chatted and he asked if I wanted to uh, uh, be a part of, he, he said, would you like to, to, to read this part of the liturgy? I had a Spanish congregation in Arkansas, and uh, a Spanish-speaking congregation, and so my my Spanish, particularly liturgically, is pretty good, so I said, sure, and the first thing I know, I'm in the procession going into this giant cathedral, and um, it's enormous, and I suddenly felt like an imposter, but I was standing behind the altar, and I looked to my left, and there's a thousand people, and to the right, it's another thousand. And straight ahead, a few more thousand. And, you know, I come from these small churches. <laughs> and so it was overwhelming. And um, I began to wonder if I would have actually, if I'd even know where on the liturgy I was supposed to jump in and do my part. But the priest just kind of slid the microphone over to me at the right point, and, and that was fine. And then he handed me the patent with the bread on it and he invited people to come up for Eucharist. And I'd been a priest for 10 years at that point, and it had given communion so many times, but I was now offering communion to all of these fellow pilgrims that I had walked with this whole distance. And some knew I was a priest, some didn't, but to be able to commune with people that I'd really been communing with for 500 miles already, and had suffered with them, had been in pain, and laughed, and been hungry, and drunk, and everything else along the way with all these fellow pilgrims. To so offer them the body and blood of Christ was uh, uh, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. And then they have this, this uh, what they call the Boto Fumiero. Which is the main attraction at the cathedral? It's an incense burner that's about the size of a barbecue pit, and it's suspended from the ceiling of the cathedral, and it swings and it makes the the distance it swings traverses the uh, the cross. The it's a, this cathedral, like most, is a cruciform shape. So they there are like seven guys who have ropes, and they get this thing swinging, and and first they. The priest handed me this ladle, big, almost a bucket with incense that I put inside the coals. And it looks like a barbecue pit, really, all these coals in there. And, and they get this thing swinging. And people in the front rows have to duck because it comes down, but they think it's going to hit them. And I had the best seat in the house with, with the, right there to the, the altar. And watching the smoke, these flumes of smoke just whoosh, go all the way to the ceiling and then come back down is Wildly dramatic.
0: Um, but sounds like a psychedelic experience all its (laughs) own.
1: It was indeed,
0: it was indeed.
1: So, uh, I went back to Arkansas and uh, was home for about uh, 12 hours. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, my body was still on European time, so I couldn't sleep. And I decided I had two more lo- months left on my sabbatical, and I was going to do this classic American road trip and go visit friends and go to national parks and stuff. I decided, no, I'm going to go back to Spain. And uh, at that moment, I booked a flight to return to Spain and went back in three days later and walked another 500 miles on a, on a different route this time, but another 500 miles that ends in Santiago. And uh, so I had a thousand miles of walking in which I could, I could make that whole psychedelic experience just incorporated in my bones. Uh, I mean, that sense of that unitive experience that a lot of people talk about with psychedelics was very real for me. But I got to be with people from all over the world far that thousand miles and experienced a terrain that was new to me and having these big skies and the ocean and and rugged pathways and wilderness and villages and vineyards and meadows and just surrounded by such beauty and feeling so connected not just with the people but with every rock and stone and pebble and leaf that I encountered along the way made that old Johns Hopkins experience so so real so so much became so much a part of me that um, that it is still with me and I uh, I uh, can't shake it uh, if I, even if I wanted to I don't think it's uh I'm, I know I'm part of creation and uh, it's You know, in the church, we we spend a lot of time talking about the mystical experiences of our forefathers, mothers, all the people we read about in the Bible. I think it's important to have them. We need to have those mystical experiences. And um, psychedelics are not the only way to be there, to be sure, but it is a really good way. And a very accessible way, and and it's my hope that more more and more people will will have that opportunity uh, that I had because it's uh, it's transformed my life. I I really think of my life as there's two. It's in two halves. Even though I've had lots of really interesting, and powerful experiences over the course of my life, the birth of my children, and being ordained as a priest, but really, it's pre-cylicide and post-cylicide. That's the demarcation, and whether it would whether I could really say that with such affirmation without it being linked to the Camino, I don't know, because I really can't separate them. But I do think it's it's vital that so you have some way you incorporate the experience to integrate that into to who you are. Otherwise, you may be lost. I mean i I mean I've talked to a lot of people about who've just done. Uh, psychedelics in a recreational way and it can be very powerful and very meaningful for them to be sure just on a saturday night somewhere it's like whoa and uh but it can also just be squandered it can be that can be wasted you can just kind of of uh, view it as like well that was something and then move on with your life but that's where i think the church is important i think that if I had had the opportunity at the end of that to go talk to my priest about this. Oh my gosh, that would have been so powerful, but I didn't. And for us as a church to be offered this place where people have had profound spiritual experiences to come to learn to do something with that, you know, to, 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 to integrate it into their larger life, to, to enable them, to connect with people who have had, profound spiritual experiences throughout history to see the connection there, to understand it in a way they wouldn't have understood biblical stories before. Um, The church is missing the boat if we don't become involved in that.
0: So so many of us live out our entire Christian lives virtually uninspired. I don't. I don't want to speak negatively about so many people's Christian experience, but for so many of us, it's just this mundane drag of always trying to uh, live up to high standards and and never really experiencing the full beauty and glory of what God offers us. Uh-huh. I'm very tempted to say that we may come to understand in the future that that for some people, psychedelics may be a route, feeling a part of that. Um, You had a unique opportunity, not only that you got to experience uh, psilocybin in the Johns Hopkins, you know, situation, but then shortly thereafter, you were able to integrate that over this thousand mile journey without the pressures of everyday life. You know, so many people have a psychedelic experience and then Monday morning, you know, they're back to the job and uh-huh. trying to juggle this glorious experience or maybe troubling experience they had, and they haven't really fully integrated that, and they're already entering back into the nine-to-five, um, that can be challenging as well. If we could ever give everybody two months off. and, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know,
1: and I, know that's, I know that's not realistic, but it is realistic to think that, you know, you could do this in a setting where you have a if re- you, you go on retreat, you know, where you've got a week, and you got a couple of days to prepare for this and you, you take the psychedelics and then you have a few days where, you know, you do get to integrate it. And I think that can be really powerful. And the church, why shouldn't the church be the place to do that? If we don't, then, you know, psychotherapists will, companies will, secular retreat centers will. It's, it's just too powerful and meaningful to squander. And, you know, churches are dying right and left. And, um, you know, nobody goes to church in Europe anymore. And the United States is heading that way. And I love the church. And we're missing the boat if we don't take advantage of this movement. And I think we're just uniquely placed to do that. And there is a hunger out there. I mean, young people don't go to church, but it's not like they're not hunger for something of deep spiritual importance they're really hungry for it and looking in all kinds of directions and uh, we're, we're we're supposed to be in that business of engaging with people and their spiritual experiences and i mean i do my best on sunday morning to to recreate a profound spiritual experience for people and sometimes it takes and sometimes it doesn't but it becomes much more powerful if you've really had something deep that, I mean, I, I know what it's like to run and run and run and find my mind altered. And I know what it's like to sit in meditation for hours and be transported. And I know what it's like to fast. And I have spent a lot of time. I know what it's like to be in pain and find that transporting, And there's all kinds of these transporting experiences that are available to people, but none that I know of are as powerful and accessible, as accessible as psychedelics. And most people are not gonna go spend years in a monastery engaged in contemplative prayer. And uh, why should that be only available to those who decide to be monks? I want it to be available to everybody the world would be a better place.
0: Well, the closest thing to a psychedelic experience for me personally is like a Christmas midnight mass. Mm -hmm. You know, that uh, the beauty and the the solemnity, our corporate intention so focused on the incarnation of Christ. It's the most, uh, to put it kind of crudely, it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on to me. (laughs) <laughs> uh, to be in a beautiful mass, uh, but I realize that's probably my weirdness coming through. Not, not most people don't, you know, could find a mass boring. I don't know. I don't know how, but. Oh, no, I don't think so.
1: I think that uh, in particular, uh, the midnight mass, the Christmas Eve service, I mean, it's what drew me first in the Episcopal church. I mean, I had a girlfriend who was Episcopalian. And she took me to church first time there. And it was like, whoa, this is mythical. This is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's transporting. To be sure. Um, And why shouldn't it be? I mean, we, but we're, what is, as you talked about, this, this um, incarnation, well, we're all incarnate, but we're also all divine. And the realization of our divinity, wow, I mean, I know I have that divine spark within me now. I thought I did before. I mean, I preached it and taught it. And understood that to be the case, I know it's true uh, now that what takes place at at midnight mass is real. And we do our best to recreate it and produce uh, theatrics that would enable people to experience that, but you can ingest it and get it for sure, for real uh and the people who you can't get to come to midnight mass will will know about it and then they'll come to midnight mass because it's like oh yeah this i this is familiar to me i've been to this place uh, it's not just a story
0: it's we have true. to lean into that as christians i think god's calling us to live in him and through him and if we if we do that He will empower us to do his work on earth, but we have to, we have to almost accept that noble calling. Um, And you might be in doing so you're usually a deer in the headlights, just like you were at Santiago. You know, you said, I'm, I'm here to serve. And then all of a sudden you're standing in front of thousands of people, you know, to some degree, we all need to just step up to the plate like that and (laughs) enter that calling and let it lead us, but it's, it's challenging and it's, it's daunting. But I think that when you have a massively spiritual or psychedelic experience, at least it gives you a taste of what being embodied in the spirit is. Exactly. You get a taste of
1: it. You get a little glimpse and you go, Oh, okay. And you can find that lots of places, but uh, you have to know what you're looking for and know that it's real uh, and not just the stuff of legends and stories and
0: apocryphal right well roger i wish i could keep here all day and listen have you regale us with even more stories but uh i'm gonna have to uh, <laughs> About
1: a few. come to uh the north fork sometime Clint. we'll uh
0: we'll uh, we'll share stories i would love to that give me excuse to to visit some family i have up there so yeah I do well before we part what kind of resources or, or contact information could you leave with our guest? I certainly want you to uh, remind us of your books. I know you have two books, and rumor has it you might be working on another. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that real quick?
1: Sure. Uh, the first book is called Running the Spiritual Path, and the second one is called School of Love, um, Planting a Church in the Shadow of Empire. And that second one is about, I already talked about the first one, but, uh, and that first one is probably more accessible to people that, that uh, who, who engage in, in physical repetitive motion, whether it be running or swimming or cycling, um, you can find yourself in a mystical place if you pay attention to what you're doing there. The second one, School of Love, is really about what the church is like at its best, when we're really teaching people about how to love people of all kinds, people who are not like ourselves, and how we do that in a, in a world that's, uh, that's really focused on the accumulation of more and more stuff, how you really learn how to love. Uh, the third one will be about, uh, it's, it's called uh, awakening, mystery, mycelium, and meditation. And uh, it's about linking those three things, how, how mystery is important. How engagement of mystery is at the essence of, of what uh, the spiritual experience is about and how with, uh, with meditation and other ways, you can engage in that. But with mycelium in particular, with uh, mushrooms, magic mushrooms, there's a, a, a ready pathway that's available. Um, and that book's not going to be out until about a year from now because it gets more and more complicated. As far as resources, there are tons of them out there. I think you could probably, if you're for a Christian audience like we have today, I think that my friend's organization, Ligare, L I G A R E, is filled with different uh, podcasts and articles and references and books that would acquaint a Christian who's interested in psychedelics to to that world. And I encourage you to explore that. whatever way might be accessible to you.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with the work they're doing. And uh, I can't, can't recommend that enough. Well, Roger, I really appreciate you being with us today. I appreciate you being open and honest about your experiences. I feel like we're on the tip of the iceberg here. And I think it's, it's people like you who are willing to share your experiences and your thoughts are going to give other people um, the courage to do the same. And I think we'll learn a lot from each other once we're willing and able to share share our stories and share our experiences with others. Well, was a pleasure talking to you, Clint. Same to you. And I wish you Godspeed and uh, your continued work up there in the Northeast will be in my daily prayers.
1: Thank you so much. Take care.
0: Good day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Reverend Roger Joslin, and I would like to express my sincere thanks to him again, for his willingness to share his interesting life journey and experiences with us. Although I wouldn't necessarily recommend the use of psychedelics to just anyone, especially if they have not taken into full consideration their own personal health and legal concerns, the more personal stories I hear from our fellow Christians about the positive role psychedelics have played in their faith and health journey, the more I find it undeniable that psychedelics might need to be considered as potentially beneficial in finding mental and spiritual health. And here on the podcast, we will continue to learn and ponder as we continue to discuss the topic. So until our next episode, may the Lord bless you and keep you.